impressions off the amazing um, album Siamese Dream. No, I don't know if it's my favourite Smashing Pumpkins album. Just under it, is it yours? What's your favourite? Uh, no, mine would probably be Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, but there are some great tracks on Siamese Dream. Fair enough, I do love that album as well. But there's, I don't know, there was something about Siamese Dream for me, but yeah, yeah. It, was, there, it was the era. It was the era. But good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, we could talk about Smashing Pumpkins for quite a while, I imagine, but I, I don't think that's on the top of everyone's list of nine days out, is it? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. It is a shame. Right, I'm also joined by John Moore and Sarah Martin, of course, from the Public Service Association, Policy Advisor up there. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, John. Morning, everyone. Morena. Yeah, uh, all right. Um, we've got a lot to get through over the next uh, wee while, and um, I, I kind of just want to start with the tax flip-flop, if I can call it the flip-flop. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind if people frame it that way, you know. Um, yeah, I, I guess if I was just to talk about, you know, we've, we've been talking for the last wee while about doing a review of um, uh, particularly around the way that we, we tax uh, gains made from mm-hmm. you know, flicking off property investments and the likes. We don't treat that fairly to, compared to the way that we treat income tax. Yeah. So we wanted to do a bit of work on that to see whether or not that would help also ease our housing crisis, which is obviously pretty important to me. Uh, and we, I wanted to do that work in office. Um, there's been a lot of scaremongering though about what that would mean for people. And so look, when I sat down and looked at the timeline, I can still get that work done, but still make sure that any changes we make won't happen until after after people have a vote. So um, it provides both certainty for people, but still urgency around the issue. Let's let's just get on with the work, but make sure people know before they have a have a vote. Yep, yep, fair enough. But I mean, you, did you change your view on this? Do you think you know? Is this a knee-jerk reaction to to one bad poll? Uh, you know, and, and sustain pressure from from the nets because even though you say the nets are totally wrong and so, and some of the things they are saying are complete enough lies, it seemed uh, after the, you know, that one poll came out, and then a few days uh, it was like, oh, what you know, should we step back into and revisit no, this? No, no, because I I tend to I tend to make sure that I just make decisions based on what I'm hearing from people because polls jump all over the place and, yeah. for, and for lots of different reasons. Uh-huh. Um, so no, we've been in, in as much as I, you know, take take heart that people think we can turn things around like that within 12 hours. Um, I've been thinking for a little while about that timeline and just how do I, you know, I had had feedback from people that they wanted certainty and I had to listen to that. So it was about thinking how can how can I still get on with doing this work but still give people that that chance and so when we sat down and thought about what the timeline would look look like actually, you know, it meant the difference between about six months so it seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, Jacinda, don't you think that some people could see this flip-flop as sort of pragmatism without your idea Idealism, and that if you flip flop so quickly on the tax issue, and it seems to be related to the poor poll showing and the TV3 poll, couldn't you flip flop on other issues such as uh, climate change and cleaning up rivers, oh. on on eliminating child yeah. policy, uh, to, poverty? Yeah, no, happy to answer that. Look. You know, I think a real flip-flop would have been abandoning this altogether and saying, look, we're not doing the work, we're just giving up on that. I'm still absolutely committed to the fact that we don't have a tax system in New Zealand that's operating fairly right now. Mm. I've always maintained I wanted to do that work as soon as I came in, and we are. First 100 days it kicks off. I'm also still saying that we're going to develop up some legislation on it. The difference is that even when you practically look at it, you can only only make sure that the changes kick in in the next tax year. So we've just been clear on the fact that that's what we'll do. So I will have gone through all the way through this process. It just won't have taken effect until people vote. Hmm. Okay. okay. Okay, Sarah, you got anything on this? Yes, and does it? Um, I mean, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about taxes, but um, 
talk about wages and minimum yeah. wages, and yeah. I was just wondering what your thoughts are about how we um, lift wages for people. Yeah. Like was, um, yeah. And thank you, Sarah, in part, discussion is, yesterday. Yeah, and in part, actually, you know, we never intended to have this significant conversation about tax. A lot of that has been because there's been uh, people think that we're going to raise their income tax, which is completely incorrect, and we've never ever talked about that. In fact, you know, one of the things that I know that we can will make the biggest difference to our lower middle income earners, particularly those with kids, is our $700 million package. When we said we're cancelling the tax cuts, we replaced it with a package that means that 70% of lower middle income earners being will be substantially better off under what we're planning to do because we've been much, much more targeted. On top of that, we want to increase the minimum wage as soon as, as soon as we come in, we'll pass that so it'll take effect from April and that'll take us up to $16.50. We've got to start pursuing, for instance, a pay equity claim for our mental health uh, workers. Uh, and of course, as government, make sure that we're a responsible employer by paying a living wage um, for those we employ directly. So lots of plans around lifting incomes as well. All right, well, I mean, we, the, the polls were mentioned just before, and to the polls, do you trust the polls personally? Do you look at these, you know, Colmore <laughs> Brunton, read research, not your own internal polls, I'm sure you probably trust those numbers, but do you trust those big no, polls? No, they're all over the shop. And the other, the thing that I would say is that I think the thing that will, the thing that, I, the thing that will make the difference this election is if people who don't usually turn out turn out, mm -hmm. and that's particularly young people. If they do... Then, then that'll turn this election. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. been said uh, the la every election for and the and last... And, and they haven't, you know, yeah. and it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's been lots of talk about it. You know, I know some of the polls are showing up that more young people are interested in changing the government this time. If they show up, the government will change. Yeah, all right. Yeah, what, what's your internal polling showing at the moment? That it's really close. Yeah, that okay. is really, really close. Um, and again, you know, you can either, it, it, that says to me that if we manage, because unlike most political parties, we have quite a big machine on election day. We try really hard to get people to get out and vote. Um, but if in those advanced voting booths, if we get, you know, campus booths really humming, that'll make a difference. Big message though, you know, 27,000 people last election voted, but their vote didn't count because they weren't enrolled. So they went out, made the effort of voting on election day, and almost the equivalent of an electorate didn't, didn't work out. So uh, my message to people, if you're worried about your enrolment, definitely show up and vote. Yeah, all right. Early, early. Sarah? Uh, well, I, I suppose since we're talking to young people, just under, um, the student through education policy, um, yeah, do you want to talk a bit about, uh, uh, can we see a move eventually to universal student allowances, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that was something that we campaigned on back in 2008. And uh, this time when we had a little look again at where the needs were, uh, one of the things that we were really worried about in the face of a really changing workforce environment for people, you know, increasing automation, mm -hmm. that the best thing that we could do was prepare our workforce as much as possible by making it easier for them to train and retrain. So when we said we wanted to make three years free, that was as much about school leavers as it was about existing people in the workforce. So anyone who hasn't trained through polytech or tertiary education can go and, regardless of their age, go and access those three years free once we've got that in by, um, over the next couple of years. So it was, yes, it's about you know our current student population that's coming in, but about those other workers as well. So that's why we thought, actually, though, there is a real, it's, it is hard. You know, it's not 170 bucks a week is not enough to survive on for our existing students. So that's why at the same time we increased, um, increased the, uh, 
student allowance and living costs by 50 bucks. You know, I would like to make it even easier than that, but it's all about what we can incrementally do. So we had to make a couple of calls on what we targeted first. Uh, Jacinda, you talk a lot about values. I'm wondering on, on the issue of education, specifically free education, yeah. from, from a rank from, say, zero, don't believe at all, or ten, highly believe in, where would you put yourself in terms of a belief in full free education? Oh, I've, always, I've said through this whole campaign I believe in free education. I put it on our billboards, free education. Okay. And so, so that's a ten? Yeah, yeah, I believe in it. I <laughs> Absolutely do. So then it's a, do, does that manifest in removing fees for education or in managing living costs for education? We've targeted fees um, and that's, you know, that's one option. Um, and that by 2024, the first three years of education for free, you know, that's a big shift for us in New Zealand. But it's still not full for education. No, no, no in the sense that if you do a four year or if, you know, mm. et cetera. But it's, but it's, but it, for me, it was all about saying we're doing this because this is what we believe in. This is what our goal is. We're just moving it along as, as quickly as we can. All right. Um, you talked a little bit um, in there about uh, automation. Um, and speaking of automation, um, there's been a story out in the Herald this morning around ACC and using algorithms. Um, looking into uh, and, and using data. Uh, in the past, you've mentioned your experience uh, as an MP helping people um, in mediation with ACC. Dunedin has a special interest in ACC. We have a uh, claim centre here, uh, and the corporation has been uh, heavily criticised in the past uh, in research coming out from both the university uh, and claim, claim support uh, group, acclaimed Otago. Um, and they've taken their concerns to the, the Beehive and to the UN. Um, and then, my re- then my recent call has been for a personal injuries commissioner uh, to oversee a- to oversee the ACC uh, to provide advice uh, to policymakers and uh, manage the system dealing with uh, victims of injuries. Uh, is that something you would consider putting in place in your first term? Yeah, I mean, I certainly want to look at um, some of the um, practices because you know. When you're, a, when you're a, an MP, you do see a number of cases where you start to feel like your national insurer is acting like a private insurer. Mm-hmm. That there's this view that you that you deny the claim and then see who comes back and challenges it. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, there'll be lots of stories out there of people who have been told that their injury is actually just, you know, uh, age-based or degeneration. And, and it's just, you know, you look at some of those claims and you think that just doesn't add up. So yeah. I, I do want to look at some of our practice in ACC whether we need that independent commissioner you know perhaps when we have a look we'll, we'll see whether or not that's what's required but I do worry from the cases I've seen that that's how they're, they're behaving yeah okay I'm um, sorry Sarah you're going to say I was going to ask a really social policy wonky question Jacinda are you um, I guess that story in the Herald also kind of points to the use of big data, data. yeah, yeah discover right. use of big data to do ultra targeting is yeah. that something you think that yeah. will I've seen continue this, with yeah I've said this many times look there's you know, making sure that we've got you know an evidence behind base behind what we do is one thing but then there's it's something entirely different particularly in our justice system this idea of using um, data points to try and predict Predict, and in our social services, predict need. There's just so many um, ways that they can, um, you know, these ethical questions. Are, there's so many ways that they can go um, uh, horribly wrong. My my starting point is I believe in early intervention. I believe in elements of universalism. I think that's the way to deliver services that doesn't stigmatise, that doesn't leave people behind, uh, and that what we're seeing around data use and social investment by this government is actually just an attempt to pair back services and invest less. 
Okay. In regards to ACC, Jacinda, you said you're concerned that ACC operates like a private insurance company, but isn't it forced to under the current legislation? I mean, it is um, stated that it's a corporation that has to run along the lines of a profit-making business. And also under the, the previous Labour government, they introduced um, a policy where companies can actually self-insure insure it. So they can opt out of the ACC option, which brings in, um, yeah, I think, quite uh, grotesque decisions by corporations where they get the right to decide whether a, a claim will go through or not if an injury has happened on a workplace. So it seems like the whole system broken. Is the ACC system broken? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, this is a, this, these general um, practices, though, that I see coming through, not just in ACC, and it does feel like there's a pattern to me, for instance, in the way that we even treat, are treating people through working income, and that's not a legislated um, effect. That's just simply the culture that's built up. And so there's something to be said for making sure that our uh, our government departments take a, uh, an approach of working with individuals as clients. Mm. rather than incentivising practice, which means that you deny access, which is what you see in, in a lot of what happens mm. in the So is there a need for uh, government uh, entities to move away from that corporate model, which yeah. was inju- introduced by the fourth Labour government? Yeah, well, even when you look at, for instance, you know, when we came in last ele- uh, last our last Labour government, you know, one of the things that, that we did straight away was have a... Uh, a set of you know rights almost for working income clients. You know we just said actually these people, you know the people that need to access uh, support from the government need to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, that doesn't take a legislative change; that takes a cultural change. And so I think there's something to be said for that across the board in all our government departments. Okay, okay. Um, where do you sit on the political spectrum? Are you a leftist? Are you or a centrist? I'm a leftist. I'm a progressive. Um, I'm a social democrat, um, yeah. but none of those terms we get used in New Zealand particularly. So, um, I get that thrown at me from time to time, describe yourself in political terms, you know, and some of them actually, when New Zealanders hear those words, well, I think alarm bells for them, unnecessarily. But those terms um, are political terms, but they can also be moral terms. Yeah, oh look, and I have no, I have no issue describing myself in that way, it's just whether or not people take much from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I take a lot from it, just. Yeah, no, I'm, happy, I'm happy to describe myself. I'm also interested to know what your thoughts are on um, the Longy government's reform program. Well, I was a child of the eighties, you know. Same so, here. So, and we saw the effect of it mm-hmm. all the way through the obviously the nineties as well. You know, I think what happened was was jarring for a lot of New Zealand communities and there was no preparation for what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, the, you know, that really feeds my view on some of our future challenges. Our next challenge that we face globally is the effects of automation on our labour markets. And my view is that it, as a government, the responsible thing to do is to prepare. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't predict the future, but we can make sure that we look after our, our New Zealanders in the process of that big, that big change. So, that, yeah, I mean, obviously there are elements of that programme that have had a devastating long-term effect on New Zealand. But in terms of those neoliberal reforms that the fourth Labour government carried out under Longy, um, when David Cunliffe was leader of the Labour Party, he, he actually railed against so th- that neoliberal agenda and said in many ways a new Labour government would reverse many of those neoliberal platforms. So in terms of those neoliberal reforms, 
forms, what would what rating would you give them? Would you give them an A plus? Would you give them uh, a C? Would you give them a D and a fail? Yeah, How, Carrie, look, I mean, I've had been asked this question a lot. I think it can start to feel a little bit removed for people. For me. What is the measure of success, economic success, for a government? Um, I'm not content with the measures that we use now because they don't focus on people. Mm. They don't focus on the needs or well-being um, of our communities. And a lot of those measures came from the reforms of the fourth Labour government and, and the so, national government that so came after that. the markers of success. You know, mm. every I've already committed that every budget I'm going to, as part of the Public Finance Act, will amend it so that I'm reporting on the number of kids in poverty mm. as a starting point. Look, if we start saying to us, you know, we're going to hold ourselves to a different Different, uh, to a different test, then that changes the way that you operate. Mm -hmm. You know, if I know that every budget I have to stand up and say how many kids are living without enough to get by, mm -hmm. then that changes the way that, that everything that you do in the year that leads up to it to do everything you can to lift kids out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And that means focusing on incomes. And I know you said that um, one of the reasons you got, or the major reason you got involved in politics was because of child yep. poverty. And certainly child po poverty massively rose because of those neoliberal reforms in the 80s and 90s. And but actually, it seems like you're hesitant no, no, to... Actually, actually <laughs> technically, 1991 was where we saw the biggest spike. The mother of all budgets, when we took away family benefits, that was mm. the biggest change we saw and the biggest decrease we saw was working for families. So would you reverse those benefit cuts as the Greens we, have talked about, raising them by 20%? We've got a families package, which does, for instance, for zero to three-year-olds, where the biggest amount of child poverty and deprivation currently exists, we're giving $60 a week uh, to every family who's uh, a low and middle income uh, earner. That means that roughly... But not beneficiaries. Year, yes. Beneficiaries included. I want to be really clear on this. Working for families go to beneficiaries. The claim that the government has been the only one that's increased benefits uh, uh, you know, in the last you know 20 years is incorrect. Working for families went to benef beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. Best Start does. Our increase and working for families that we announced last budget does as well. So that is why that program will affect every single child in poverty and I'm really proud of it. But still you rule out raising benefits by 20% which would, which would make a huge difference for um, uh, the most poorest of our society. What we've done for the working for families, the increases we've made there does affect beneficiaries. Every beneficiary with a child ends up better off. Everyone else we've brought in an extra boost over the winter periods of an extra 450 to $700. But you rule out reversing those cuts of the early 90s I'm with the mother of all budgets. I'm delivering them in a better way, I think. Right, Sarah, you're going to... put more money into their budget, and I'm happy to take you through it, but in some of those families, they'll be $9,000 better off. Ooh, Sarah, I'm sure you've got something to say on this topic. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I want to ask about equal pay. All right, brilliant. Can I move on to equal pay? You can. Um, just you mentioned equal pay. I was just wondering, um, moving on, um, you know, getting rid of this government's bill on um, pay equity, which will make it harder for women to make equal pay claims. Uh, what are your plans in terms of a time frame to um, bin that bill? Yeah, well, look, we need to get it off the order paper. We can pretty much do that straight away. Um, you don't have to do anything really to drop something um, from the order paper. Uh, and then we, it's just a matter of redrafting the legislation based on the joint working group. So it's something we'd get, want to get on with um, uh, right away. All right. You talked a little bit before about automation, um, changing the way work is uh, done uh, and, and where we can work. Will you... Yeah, I, we've seen National in the past um, talk about targeting um, courses in university, getting rid of ones that um, you know people aren't getting uh, good jobs out of, and uh, putting more people into um, engineering and, and nursing and doctors and whatnot. Um, 
will Labor look at uh, um, you know putting uh, mechanisms in place to put students into more productive and um, and roles and roles that will not be as affected by automation as uh, others like manufacturing and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think probably what's going to di- differentiate, you know. Um, New Zealand and just our workforce in the future is our ability to maintain our creativity, our problem solving, all of the things that actually are unique to us. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's been a big focus on STEM. I think we need to make it more STEM in our schools. We yep. need to add that creativity back in. And we need to do it, in, as I say, in our schooling um, system. So I think at the moment there's been, you know, there's been a pretty big focus on the areas where there are skills gaps, but I don't want it that to be at the expense of us really making sure that we have these well-rounded young people coming mm. through. We've probably got a bit of over-assessment in our education system as well. You know, you know, school should be a place of creativity, imagination, mm-hmm. um, as well, you know, and learning, obviously. But but at the moment, I think we're losing um, our ability to prepare that next generation for that collaborative, problem-solving, entrepreneurial spirit we need them to have. Mm-hmm. A national cut uh, R&D funding yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, is that something that national will be... Uh, Labor will be yeah, reversing. We've said that we want to bring back the R&D tax credit. So mm-hmm. that means that we incentivise research and development um, with that regime. means we're more competitive with some of our overseas counterparts yeah. and hopefully won't lose businesses like we did before. And, w- you know, would you like to see a move to green tech? Because, yeah. you know, I mean, the way the climate is going now, um, green tech is very going to be very important moving forward. If you have a, a, you know, all sectors, all gases, emissions training scheme, as New Zealand should, that incentivizes innovation in mm. that area. You know, my real vision for New Zealand is that we become um, uh, we become the go-to, particularly for agricultural innovation, uh, because we are the most affected uh, in that regard. You know, other countries like Ireland and Denmark are too, and they'll be looking to where there are ways where we can demonstrate that it's possible to reduce your emissions in that sector. Mm-hmm. But it only that work only happens if you have a proper ETS. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, uh, yeah, in terms of environmental concerns, that the agricultural sector needs to be massively reformed. Um, your proposal for a water tax would, I guess, incentivise um, farm- farmers to take some action. But what other sort of legislative measures would you use with the agricultural sector to bring about more uh, structural reforms? Well, but just, yeah, you know, as I say, if you've got, uh, and we need to ease it for these, so for those industries that really are exposed, we need to, to ease the path. You know, I think everyone probably agrees with that. But unless you start, again, as I say, unless there's um, a, a price attached to it, then you don't see any of that adaptation and mitigation. You know, so these examples where actually, if you use marginal land for planting trees and riparian planting, those kind of offsets mean that there is no cost at all um, for, for some individuals. So until you start pricing it, though, you don't see that kind of behaviour change. So it is about it is about really having a, a comprehensive scheme. That's what will make it. So do you think that uh, the numbers of dairy stock need to be reduced? And does the government need, need to play a role in forcing farmers to reduce these stocks somehow? Well, if you make sure that you've got um, some consideration of the impact that those extra additional increase in intensification has, then nothing changes. So what we've what we've said is, and this comes off the back of some work that was done on a national policy statement on water quality, uh, that if you want to um, have large scale conversion or large scale intensification, you should go through a resource consent process. Mm. 
that means we start considering the impact on the environment. Yeah, but this, I mean, these areas, um, you know, like the Mackenzie Basin, like around Ramfurly and Central Otago, that were brown for years, yeah. absolutely brown for years, and now they are green. Mm. And we are seeing the issues from that. Mm. Um, we are seeing, you know, with, with the water level drops uh, and the fact that they need to uh, in, put intensive uh, amounts of nitrate into mm. the soil. Mm. Water levels drop, nitrate levels increase. So that's pollution increase. Would you like to see areas like that protected from dairy farming? I think we just need to have, we just need to think about the impact that all of those decisions have. And when you think, if you've got a process like a national policy statement on water that says if you want to change like that, Mm -hmm. actually you've got to think about the impact on the environment. Yeah. You know, that's, and if you think, well, and if I'm going to use water, there's a price to that. So is this an economic decision anymore? So there's lots of ways that we can start saying, let's think about our land use. Yeah. Because there are lots of productive ways to use our land that don't have necessarily that environmental impact um, and that do still end up having a benefit um, to New Zealand. But unless you have proper, unless you add ways to factor in the impact across the board then you don't have that you don't you don't think about that you just convert mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and see what happens yeah so yeah yeah let's let's just think about those let's just have ways to properly consider all of those impacts all right well we're um, almost out of time so i've just got three quick fire questions for you pro or anti-brexit oh i've i was anti-brexit yeah 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 um bernie or hillary Oh yeah, I just I just wanted someone to beat Trump. It was it was pretty, you know. But democracy delivers what democracy delivers. That's right. That's right. But you didn't answer the question, Bernie or <laughs> Bernie or Hillary. No, literally, literally, I was whoever can beat Trump. Can. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and finally, Greens or New Zealand first. Oh, we've got an MOU with the Greens, so they get first call. Yeah. That was a cheeky one in the end. Uh, all right. Well, um, thank you so much nice for coming in. Nice to chat. Oh, it's been brilliant. Uh, thank you very much, John and Sarah, as always. See you uh, both again next week. Uh, and I guess uh, good luck. Thanks a lot. Yeah, not cheers. Long to go. Yeah, not oh, eight days.